Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot In 1961, Peter Bogdanovich met Polly Platt. He was 21 years old, living with his parents, and already considered a young genius in the theater world. Polly was 19 and a widow. Her husband, a poet, died in a car accident, and she was putting her life back together. She was small and thin, blonde, a little bohemian, a lot of personality. Was there any magic right away? I liked her, and I liked the idea of living with somebody. I hadn't done that before. I asked a couple of people. <laughs> Nobody wanted to do it, so Polly seemed like a good idea. I'm not sure if this is really how Peter felt about Polly when they first met, or if this is what happens when memories get tangled with years of resentment. It seems out of character, though. Peter's a romantic. His movies are about love, and he seems to like being in love. But this is the way he remembers it now. Peter was working as an artistic director at a summer theater in upstate New York, and he hired Polly to be his costume designer. We had started an affair, and we lived in a little house um, next to a babbling brook. It was nice. I thought it would be over when we finished the summer, but it didn't end up that way. We moved into an apartment together, which I didn't really want to do, but I couldn't figure out a way to get out of the situation. Polly would later say, Peter brought me film, I brought him life. Over the next decade, they shared a mission. They loved movies and wanted to make them. But in 1961, they were practically kids. They didn't have many connections in Hollywood, and they lived all the way across the country. For most of us, it would have seemed like a pipe dream. But not for Peter, and not with Polly by his side, just as determined. Peter wanted to be a director, and this is the story of how he made it happen. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is Episode 2, Target Hollywood. When Peter and Polly got back to the city, they moved into a small apartment not far from his parents. In 1963, they got married. Peter's father didn't like the idea. He said, you are too young to get married. You know what you should do. When you're walking down the street next time, you would see a child in a stroller that being pushed by his mother. That could be your wife. <laughs> my father was 20 years older than my mother, and they got along pretty well. This is obviously a strange thing for a father to say to his son. Strange doesn't really cut it. It's uncomfortable. 
Peter's parents didn't come to the wedding. He didn't invite them. A close friend, an actor named George Morforgan, was his best man. The Justice of the Peace, the young, youngest guy, not young, he was 35, 40, um, was very casual. Have a seat. What's your name? Peter? Polly? Uh-huh. Hi, George. Uh-huh. Very casual. But when he started the speech, he suddenly became Dylan Thomas, or like he was doing Shakespeare. Do you, Polly? Peter? It was really, I'm not kidding. <laughs> it was so awful that I almost could started laughing. And I had to restrain myself not to laugh. And George, standing right behind me, goes, just once. And I, th- I was almost went. And we got through it. And we, I do, I do. And we ran out the door because we were screaming with laughter. We, we ran down the circular staircase. The three of us were laughing like insanity. It was so funny. And that, that's what I remember about the wedding. Peter was doing a lot of writing about movies. In 1961, the Museum of Modern Art asked him to write a monograph, basically a long essay focused on a single subject. They wanted him to write about Orson Welles and curate a film series to go along with it. Peter was thrilled. And I wrote the monograph, which is my first published work, Cinema of Orson Welles, and curated this show. We got all his films, including Mr. Arcade, in which nobody had even seen in the United States, and um, it was very successful. The museum paid Peter 125 bucks, and it was a big success. So Peter pitched another, this time on Howard Hawks, the director of Rio Bravo, The Big Sleep, and His Girl Friday, the fast-talking screwball comedy starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. I am fond of you, you know. And a girl? I often wish you weren't such a stinker. Yeah. I was a big fan of Hawks by this time, having seen virtually all his films by then. And um, I went to the museum and I said, if I can get Paramount to pay for it, would you do a Howard Hawks retrospective and let me write the monitor? They said, in a heartbeat. Peter had been writing movie reviews for Ivy Magazine, which went to all the Ivy League colleges. So he had a contact in Paramount's publicity department. So I called the guy I knew at Paramount. I said, if I can get the Museum of Modern Art to do a retrospective of Howard Hawks, you guys pay for it? <laughs> and he said, yeah. I got paid 250 bucks a week curated all of his films and wrote a monograph and went to California and met with Howard Hawks and interviewed him for the monograph. Howard Hawks interviews second tape. Most of your films have a very fast pace. Especially after talking pictures came in, they, they used to be rather hesitant, slow, and uh, I thought it'd be wise to step up the uh, pace, and we stepped it up about 20%, I would say. Peter kept all his recordings with directors in individual boxes. Between those note card reviews he kept from his teenage years and these recordings, Peter was building a personal library about film history. No, but we're, we're the museum let him do another series a year later on Alfred Hitchcock. Peter was becoming a regular cottage industry of museum monographs. Maybe the only cottage industry of museum monographs. Make sure it's working. Hitchcock interviewed side one. They talked about how Hitchcock storyboarded all his shots, about how he worked with actors. And they talked about food. You really hate eggs, Hitch? Oh, I really do. <laughs> horrible. I think the smell of a hard-boiled egg is the most horrible thing in the world. How people can eat them. I, I knew uh, a very big man. He was a producer, theater producer. And uh, we used to have lunch together, and the hors d'oeuvre trolley would go by. And without the trolley stopping, he'd stretch a hand out, pick up a hard-boiled egg, and pop it into his mouth. 
Oh, really? It was most revolting. <laughs> Had he popped a sardine or something, it might have been different with an egg, you know. <laughs> but you don't mind eggs in the souffle or something like that? No, as long as they're disguised. You know? <laughs> this gives me an idea. When we're finished with Peter, our next podcast, Breakfast with Hitch. Anyway... Polly would often go with Peter on these trips, sitting in on the interviews. She'd take notes and share them with Peter. They weren't making much money, but they were meeting their film heroes. Each interview seemed to lead to the next one and the next. Then, at a dinner party, Peter met Harold Hayes, the editor of Esquire magazine. He called Hayes up a week later. And I said, uh, well, I wrote this piece about Hollywood. Would you like to read it? I think it might interest you. He says, yeah, send it over. He not only bought it, for 600 bucks, which was a lot of money for me. And he used it as the lead piece in the August issue. And he assigned me to do another piece about Jerry Lewis, a profile. This was a big deal. Peter had loved Jerry Lewis since he was a kid. He'd been doing Jerry Lewis impressions for years. It's Daniel, my talcum powder, you know that one. <laughs> so he flew to L.A. to meet him. They had dinner at Lewis's mansion in Bel Air. Well, it was funny because he would do shtick, you know. He went to the bathroom, came back, and there was almost a whole roll of toilet paper around his feet, <laughs> dragging it in. It's just crazy. He also watched Jerry Lewis on set in a film directed by Frank Tashlin called It's Only Money. I'm not a private investigator. You want Pete Flint. <laughs> You're not Pete Flint? No, but I could fix your TV set. Sex maniac. When Peter wasn't writing, he and Polly were trying to get a play called Once in a Lifetime produced off-Broadway in New York. Peter was directing, but it didn't turn out well, and Peter got depressed. Once in a Lifetime was a flop. Frank Tashlin, the director, who I met when I was doing the Jerry Lewis piece, came to New York and came to visit us in our little apartment uh, on Riverside Drive. Frank just said it flat out. He said, what do you want to direct, theater or movies? I said, movies? What are you doing here? We make them in L.A. And four months later, we moved. When we come back, a road trip. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1964, Peter and Polly packed their belongings into a beat-up 1951 Ford convertible. It was bright yellow. They were broke. It only cost them $150. It had to get them to California, five days across the country. We started, we bye, everybody, bye, bye, we'll see you. We drive, we drive about an hour, and the car's overheating like crazy. It's bubbling up. We took it in somewhere, and we had to go back because you couldn't drive it. They got the car fixed, or so they thought, and set out again on the road. And the, the car overheated constantly. We, so what, what happened is we would get to a hill, and we would put it in neutral and roll down the hill in neutral so that we'd cool off the car. And we did it all the way across the country until we got to Kansas. No hills in Kansas. It was sort of fun, you know. We had the car was full of a dog, that her dog, puppy, black dog with one eye. When they got to L.A., Peter and Polly rented a small house on Satakoy Street in the San Fernando Valley. The bright yellow Ford was embarrassing, so they spray-painted it black, which wasn't much better. They got in touch with the people Peter had written about, including Jerry Lewis. One day he says to me, I don't want to see that fucking car of yours, that piece of shit car in my driveway anymore. I want you to take one of my cars. Take a Mustang. I said, I can't take your Mustang. Why? I got four of them. Peter and Polly pulled out of Lewis's driveway in a brand-new red Mustang, which they drove for about a year before they got a car of their own. Their social life was busy, lots of dinners with friends. Peter and Polly weren't big partiers, but every now and then, they went to the trendy spots, including a bar called Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. Peter wrote a satirical essay about it for Esquire. Back in 1965, it was the birthplace of go-go dancing. Peter remembers watching the actress Mamie Van Doren dancing wildly with a big black bow in her hair while go-go dancers were suspended in cages. And of course, they went to film screenings. And it was at one of those screenings that Peter met Roger Corman. We both ended up going to the same performance of a French movie. He said, yeah, I read your stuff in Esquire. Do you want to write movies? And I said, yeah. I'm starting to wonder if Peter is just incredibly lucky or just good at making connections and putting himself in the right situations. Either way, this was good for Peter. If you wanted a crash course in how to make a movie quickly and inexpensively, Roger Corman was your man. X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Unseen forces of the unforgettable memory. Roger Corman has produced hundreds of low-budget movies. He's also given some of the biggest directors in the business their first shot. Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard. They're all graduates from what they call the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. Roger remembers talking with Peter after that film screening. He was simply, if there could be such a thing as a 19th century Renaissance man, he would have been that. Uh, He has had interests and opinions. Peter always had an opinion on just about anything. Roger invited Peter to his office, and after they talked some more, he hired him as an assistant. And in Roger's world, that meant much more than getting coffee. It's the development of screenplays, but it's beyond that. It's uh, scouting locations, casting, working in production, working in pre-production, working in post-production. Essentially, you name it, uh, it's everything. Peter began working on Wild Angels. All right, everybody! A 1966 biker movie starring Peter Fonda and the real Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club. 
It inspired a whole generation of biker films through the early 70s. Peter ended up rewriting the script and shooting what's called second unit, which in his case meant directing background action and some stunt sequences. Let's get him! Wait a minute, we gotta bury him first. The Hells Angels didn't make things easy for Roger or for Peter. So they would pretend that the bike wouldn't start and things like that. Take it easy. This was Peter's first time working on a film set, thinking about camera placement, leading a crew, directing actors on camera. Kind of a tough gig when, first time at it, you're a skinny 26-year-old film buff giving orders to a bunch of rebellious bikers. Climax of the film, the Hell's Angels get into a big fight with the townspeople and uh, there weren't enough townspeople. And I said, I really need some more people. And I said, Peter, get in there and join the fight. Unfortunately, Peter had said something disrespectful to the angels. When I sent him into the fight, the Hell's Angels set out <laughs> to beat him around a little bit. It was a tough initiation. Critics didn't care for Wild Angels, but audiences sure did. It was the 16th highest grossing movie of 1966. That same year, Peter and Polly got invited to a party at John Ford's house. By then, Ford was part of the old guard in Hollywood, a revered director known for westerns like Stagecoach and The Searchers. Peter was working on a book and a documentary about Ford. It was at this party that Peter and Polly met Frank Marshall. Wow, I've known Peter since 1966, I guess, so that's 50-plus years. Today, Marshall is one of the top producers in Hollywood. He produced the Indiana Jones movies and many of Steven Spielberg's films. Back then, though, he was anything but famous. He was a college kid at a John Ford party with his parents. And I was kind of wandering around and seeing all these incredible actors, and, but not really talking to anybody. And down the stairs came this perky little blonde with a, you know, kind of a pixie haircut and very cute. And we started talking about all the people that were there. And it was Polly Platt. And Polly said to me, oh, well, if you, if you love movies like you sound like you do, you need to meet my husband. And I said, oh, Really? Uh, your husband? Yeah, sure. That's Already just not, what I, I'm not into this all of a sudden. Just what I want to do. Your husband, sure. So, Anyway, she took me into the room, and there was Peter. He was 27, and he was holding court in the corner of this room. He must not have had known Ford's reputation, or maybe he And he was fascinating. Polly introduced them, and Peter told Frank about shooting second unit on Wild Angels. I had no idea what that meant, but he was so excited about it that it was infectious. Then Peter said Roger Corman was going to give him an entire movie to direct. And I said, hey, it sounds like fun. You know, if you need any help, give me a call. And about three months later, around Easter of 1967, I think, uh, I got this call from my dad. And he said, did you meet somebody named Bogslanovich or something <laughs> at the Ford party? And I said, yeah, why? He said, well, he wants you to call him. Frank called Peter back from a payphone in the UCLA dorm. He said, well, I, I can't pay you, but I can pay your expenses if you want to come work on this movie. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, I don't know. I've never made a movie before. <laughs> Just come over. Peter and Polly still needed help navigating Los Angeles, and Frank had lived there all his life. Peter and Polly were from New York, so 
they didn't quite know how to fit in out in the valley because they lived in an apartment. They didn't have a lawn. They didn't have, you know, a house to take care of. And I grew up out there. I kind of knew how to do everything. So, you know, uh, rent a car, get a this, get a that, where this was. And so I kind of, when I look back, I was kind of becoming a junior producer in taking care of what the director needed to get their vision up on the screen. That vision Peter and Polly were trying to get up on the screen, it would become the movie Targets. Targets, a movie about a war inside a man's head. Famously, Roger Corman never lets anything go to waste, especially when he could turn leftover footage into money. He had an idea. He calls me up and he says, Boris Karloff owes me two days' work. Boris Karloff was the king of horror films, most famous for playing Frankenstein's monster. And he has a very recognizable voice. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. That's right. Karloff was the voice of the Grinch in the holiday special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Around the same time he would have recorded the Grinch, at age 80, he was being enlisted in a Roger Corman scheme for a new film. Peter remembers the call from Roger going something like this. I'd like you to shoot 20 minutes with Karloff in those two days. You can shoot 20 minutes in two days. I've shot whole pictures in two days. Then Roger wanted Peter to add another 20 minutes of a Karloff movie called The Terror, giving them 40 minutes, roughly half a movie. Roger continued his pitch. And then I want you to shoot with some other actors and fill in the other 40 minutes, and I got a new Karloff picture. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, sure. Roger offered to pay Peter $6,000 to make the movie and said Polly could work on it too. So they got to work trying to figure out how to make Boris Karloff, this classic horror star, relevant to a 1960s audience. Peter had an epiphany one morning while shaving. They would make a thriller, and the first scene could be set in a movie theater where the terror is playing on the screen. And Boris Karloff is watching himself from the seats. And when the lights come up, Boris is sitting next to Roger Corman. And he turns to Roger and says, that is the worst movie I've ever seen. And I laughed and I thought, wait a second. If he's an actor, he doesn't want to make those kind of movies anymore. Besides, I got Byron Arlock. He wants to quit. There's the beginning of the picture. I'm not making any more films, Marshall. Then Polly had a great idea. She thought they should add a modern killer. And Peter remembered something his Esquire editor had said to him, that he should make a movie about Charles Whitman, a former Marine who, in 1966, climbed a tower at the University of Texas in Austin and fired on a crowd. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were... For 18 years, it was the worst mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history. Peter decided to weave the story of Boris Karloff's aging horror actor with a modern horror story of a homicidal sniper who goes on a shooting spree. Filming began in the spring of 1967. Roger put up the money to make it, $130,000. They had to move quickly, though, because they had only 23 days to shoot the whole movie. It was day, night. I fell in love with making movies. I, I remember, and I almost flunked out of school. That was the other problem. I never went to class that semester. But uh, 
you know, I got to do everything. I got to build some sets. I acted in it. I shot some of it. I uh, went and found set dressing. I, you know, I learned really how the movie goes together. Polly worked as the production designer, her first official gig. She made nuanced choices, like having Karloff surrounded by warm tones and the young sniper in cold shades of blues and whites. And I think her ability, particularly visually, designing sets, wardrobe, and so forth, helped Peter a great deal. All the good movies have been made. Peter cast himself in the role of the young director working with Boris Karloff, this fading star of old horror movies. I wrote the part in Targets for a friend of mine, for George Morfolk, and he couldn't do it. He had a problem. So I said, oh, fuck it, I'll just play it myself. Because I had written it very much for George, and I thought, there's nobody else I like that much, so I'll just do it myself. Frank was shocked at how decisive Peter was for a first-time director. It was incredible because he always knew what he wanted. In fact, and that's what made it possible for us to do the movie for a price, because he could articulate what he wanted. Frank and Peter learned a lot on the target shoot, notably how to break the rules. Yeah, it's shoot and apologize later. Well, you learned a lot about how to steal shots. If you can't get it, legitimately steal it. Guerrilla-style filmmaking, you know. They stole some of those shots on a busy L.A. freeway. The cinematographer, Laszlo Kovacs, was behind the camera. Well, you're not allowed to shoot on the freeway, at the freeway. We just did it. We had two cameras, one with a long lens, one with a wide-angle lens, and we shot all this stuff on the freeway with me on a walkie-talkie. The scene had the sniper shooting at drivers from a tower alongside the freeway. Peter and crew needed to move quickly, they had to communicate with the team on the tower and the stuntmen in the cars. Walkie-talkie radios were key. And we'd just say bang on the radio, and the person in the car would s- swerve. They'd say, OK, we see you. You're coming up Sherman Way. I see you. I see you. OK, keep coming. Keep coming. You got him, Laszlo? Kovacs was shooting. You got him. Got OK, OK, ready, ready. One, two, three, bang. And that's when the person would react like he's been shot. We actually brought a girl onto the freeway, on the freeway. She got out of her car, and we went bang, and she fell, got shot in the back and fell. That's when the cops came. There, there, there was a bunch of cops came. We, we, we got out of there pretty fast. We never got caught. None of this worried Roger Corman, who is incredibly nonchalant about breaking the law to get a shot. That's our normal style. After the shoot was done, Frank went back to school. Peter and Polly had a baby girl in November of 1967. They named her Antonia, after Peter's brother, who died in that horrible kitchen accident before Peter was born. Targets did not get a wide release. It came out in August of 1968, the same year as the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. The movie became part of a rallying cry for gun control. Not many people saw Targets because of the limited release, but critics were impressed by how much Peter accomplished as a first-time director with very little money. Peter invited his parents to a screening of Targets in Arizona, where they had moved. Afterwards, they weren't effusive. That wasn't their way. His mother, Herma, hugged him and said, It's very good. Peter saw his father across the room. He just looked at me and nodded. And there was something in his eyes that was very tragic. 
Uh, and he really understood the movie on a very profound level, and he also understood that I was a good filmmaker. And it was all in that look, a nod and a look. The power that uh, fathers have over us is... <laughs> it's the best review I ever got. Just a look and a nod. In our next episode, Peter makes the movie that will define his career. And he said it's also the best film by a young American director since Citizen Kane. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, that's what it says. And Polly wonders if her marriage to Peter will survive. I really believed that every director would have an affair with his leading lady, and my husband was not going to be any exception. That's all to come on The Plot Thickens. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yako Friedman, Susanna Zapeda, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish, who once killed a man in Reno just for suggesting Sean Renoir was overrated. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.